And you people, you're all astronauts on some kind of Star Trek. We are explorers. We're going to stumble, make mistakes, I'm sure more than a few before we find our footing. But we're going to learn from those mistakes. That's what being human is all about. It is possible to commit no mistakes and still lose. That is not a weakness, that is life. We're Starfleet officers. Weird is part of the job. Base, the final frontier. Make it so. Do it. Hit it. Let's fly. I'm Aiden. I'm Lindsay. And this is the Big Spot. And we're very excited to be talking about the first season of Star Trek, the original series today. Yes, we are. Um, it's a little bit different, I guess. We Usually we tackle like one cohesive, little discrete Narrative unit. units, yeah. Yeah, like a play by yeah. Shakespeare or, or an, an episode, episode of yeah. Twin Peaks. Or a movie but, or something. But yeah, yeah, now we're doing a whole season. So it's it's kind of new for both of us. Mm-hmm. I, I don't know. Are you a little nervous, Aiden? Uh, I'm not nervous. I know that we were going to screw up. So that removes <laughs> all, all uh, worry about You're what's very coming. Low, yeah. Low, yeah. Uh, it's a low bar to cross. Exactly. All right. Well, I mean, that's that's entirely fair. <laughs> um, so I guess the natural place to start any conversation about the original series is to start with the production history. And there's a lot of legendary stories that have um, come out of the the production history of yeah, Star yeah, Trek, well, the original yeah, series. Yeah. Um, so, I mean, none of, none of what we're going to be talking about in the, this first little bit is going to be revelatory. Nothing we're going to talk about at all on this podcast is no. going to be revelatory. No. Um, I mean, I guess if you're brand new to Star sure. Trek, maybe you'd be like, oh, that's interesting. All right. So for the <laughs> two people who yeah. might, you know, not Join, know yeah, the story. Exactly. Um, Gene Roddenberry. Obviously, the, the creator, creator yeah. of Star Trek. Um, he had an interesting life. Yeah, yeah, he did. He was born in 1921. <laughs> he uh, was raised um, by an LAPD officer. He became an LAPD officer himself as well. Yeah, later on. Um, served in the Army uh, mm. or in the... the yeah, it was, the, the, it was the Army Air Force at Army the time. Air Force, there was yeah. no Air Force separate, but yeah. Uh, yeah. So he was a pilot. He flew for Pan Am and then eventually, like I said, became a, an LAPD officer and always dreamed of being a writer. And I think this is something really important to think about in the context of that time period um, when he was growing up in the 20s, going back to like, you know, the late 1800s, early 1900s through to the, you know, mid-century period. There were a lot of pulpy magazines and like boys adventure novels and magazines mm-hmm. that were being published. And so um, coinciding with the rise of movies, like the silent film era and then television in the 30s and 40s, um, there's just so many opportunities for kids growing up in that period to become young adults who are obsessed with storytelling. And mm-hmm. so you get somebody like Gene Roddenberry who, um, yeah, read a lot of sci-fi and adventure stories, um, you know, grew up with Westerns. One of his first writing credits is on a, a show called Have Gun, Will Travel, yeah. uh, a pretty popular Western from the 50s. Um it does. It makes a lot of sense that he would be the the showrunner and progenitor of a series like Star Trek. Yeah, it's it's it seems like there was a natural 
evolution of television towards stuff somewhat similar to Star Trek. I mm. think Star Trek obviously did things very differently, but, um, you know, there was Lost in Space, which was kind of a, you know, a, a sci-fi-ish inspired comedy yeah. series, really. But, you know, it, but it was, you know, it was people were looking to the future for mm-hmm. their stories. It wasn't just, um, you know, Westerns and World War II stuff, although there was a lot of that still. For sure. Uh, you know, there, there was a, a broadening of horizons around, you know, centralized around these uh pulpy magazines and the sci-fi magazines as well like the more hardcore stuff that you know your your asimovs and Heinleins and stuff wrote in as well so there was a there was a, a blossoming of different types of storytelling at the time and roddenberry clued into these two uh kind of connections you know he had more of a sci-fi kind of approach i'd say mm-hmm. he was a little maybe less uh into the whole western aspect of it yeah um but he did eventually combine those two into uh what eventually became a pitch for star trek yeah um which was in the the briefest version which is not entirely accurate but it was a wagon train in space and wagon, wagon train, train to the stars to the stars thank there you, you go. thank you <laughs> thank you for correcting see screwed up already uh but he uh you know wagon train at the time was a very popular western tv show um about episodic the, in nature yeah. every week this group of settlers would encounter some new problem, problem on their and, way to to the west the oregon trail or on the oregon trail yeah so he uh he had this kind of overall idea um but he also had kind of a very particular politics and uh idea behind it um he'd previously written for he created a show actually called the lieutenant Mm -hmm. which was a military kind of pseudo uh courtroom drama type thing uh it was about these marines and one of them's a lawyer i think um and they they had an episode that was like head on about racism in the military and and you know you had the black characters and that was actually the first time Michelle Nichols would have appeared on screen she was uh, he cast her for an episode of that um, that episode never aired because it was so risque and so uh, so much of an affront to uh, cons- very conservative media uh, climate at the time. I think the the pulp fiction type background and and especially sci-fi is what really allows stories like the kind that Roddenberry wanted to tell to be told because Mm -hmm. um, sci-fi especially is well suited to the kind of morality plays that was what was also really popular at the time things Mm -hmm. like the Twilight Zone or the Outer Limits Um, or even like Doctor Who to a certain extent uh, in England which just Just started started airing around the same time I think Um, so you know it's it's a thing where you can you can draw these analogies to what you're experiencing. Sci-fi is really good at that yeah. without pointing at it too directly. Yeah. And I think that's where, you know, Roddenberry tries this with the lieutenant, but it's too direct. It's, yeah. too, it's too this real. is us. Yeah, yeah. But if you did that, you know, in the 23rd century on a spaceship, it feels removed. It feels a little bit removed from our current society. So it makes it a little bit more acceptable, maybe. Yeah, exactly. And um, yeah, and it was so it was it was that combination of uh, progressive kind of uh, thinking uh, behind the show uh, combined with I think the other two ones that are always mentioned are uh, Forbidden Planet yes. and uh, the Horatio Hornblower series yeah. uh, of books, especially yeah. uh, those are kind of two really central uh 
inspirations. Inspirations, yeah, for for the series. So when you combine all of those things together, you get the pitch for Star Trek. Um, and he made the pitch to the networks. They said, I think I think no. there were three scripts that were initially oh, yes. pitched, or maybe there was three after three the, treatments. I thought, or something like yeah, that. like yeah. after they picked up the show, he had three scripts or something like that. Yeah, maybe. But yes, the pitch initially. <laughs> Um, was not successful though. Not at all. No. So he went to, I mean, there's only three networks in, in yeah. 1960s, uh, CBS, NBC and ABC, and they all passed. Mm-hmm. Um, so he went to somewhere else, which is a, a very interesting story. I love this. Uh, it's so cool. Uh, so, uh, Lucy, everybody loves Lucy <laughs> to combine uh, a bunch of titles together. Yes. Uh, Desilu Productions, uh, famous in the sixties, especially, uh, for, uh, for her great success. I'm blanking on her last name now. Lucille Ball? Lucille Ball, jeez. Oh my goodness. I am just... You're really bad with names. <laughs> it's terrible. For, Can't for anybody Lucille who's Ball. new to the podcast, this is an ongoing... I will ask you for Kirk's name at least twice <laughs> this episode, guaranteed. It's just terrible. But uh, yeah, so it goes to Lucille Ball's company, uh, Desilu Productions, at the time, very famous in the in the 60s. Yeah, she was producing everything. Dick Van Dyke Show. Yeah. Like, there were so many different things that, that Desilu was involved with. Yes. And she personally intervened to make this show happen, happen on yeah. more than one occasion yeah. um and it was because she believed in the show so much she put up her own money to, to help produce, produce the, the pilot yeah fascinating so talk about the pilot yeah the original pilot okay so the cage is the original <laughs> pilot uh it does not feature kirk or dr mccoy it does feature a spock a version yes. of spock yes um and it also features in second in command is actually a woman named number one yes uh, unnamed character we know her as una later on but for now she's number one uh and it's it's a very kind of cerebral episode of star trek i i always felt more comfortable watching it after watching something like next generation which could do a little yeah. bit more cerebral stuff yeah um so in some respects it feels ahead of its time because oh, yeah definitely uh, it's very different than than the rest of the original series, nice especially in the first season. swashbuckling. You've got your captain, Christopher Pike, who's uh, in that episode is is almost like done with being a captain. He doesn't, yeah. you know, he doesn't want to lead. He's tired of it. And um, he gets captured by a group of aliens, the Telosians, who um, their civilization has been destroyed or something, and they want yeah. a race of humanoid slaves to help them rebuild and yeah. they think if they get this handsome captain and the survivor of a previous a crash previous crash ship to mate and produce this slave race everything will be great and it's a very high-minded philosophical examination of um you know the rights of people and yeah. well uh, and na- and uh, reality versus appearance yeah. and so, i mean because these aliens are capable of creating whatever image in your brain yes. that you think you're living in a totally different reality yes. um and they use that throughout the the course of the episode um mostly to trick pike into basically sleeping with this woman yes. to, <laughs> to try and create this race and of course pike outsmarts them and and you know of figures course. out how to how to block their their uh, mind-controlled, you know, surges and stuff. Everything's uh, fine at the end. They of speed off into the sunset. Well, uh, which sun? The proto-star the, the, <laughs> the nearest sun, they yes. head off into it. And uh, yeah, so it it's... It's yeah, it's a very philosophical kind of commentary. It's a about, good episode. I really enjoy I, The Cage. I think same. it's a fun episode. Yeah. But it's not fully Star Trek. And watching it yeah. after you've seen... The original series, you're like, there's there's things that feel like they're adjacent to Star Trek, like Spock. Yeah. Uh, Leonard Nimoy 
plays uh, a more emotional Spock. I've heard he did that as a response to, um, is it Jeffrey Hunter was the name of the actor who played Pike? Yeah. He had yeah. a much more subdued yeah. presentation. Like yeah. the way his acting style was much more subdued. So and Leonard serious. Nimoy. Yeah. yeah. So Leonard Nimoy kind of ups the emotional part of it, which is weird to see like watch it just for that to see spock smile (laughs) when he's touching the flowers and stuff you're just like right he's giddy like that doesn't happen (laughs) like maybe once but um so i mean yeah the it like aiden said cerebral uh mindful philosophical the networks hated it yeah so this is where things get really interesting because at that point it was a really expensive proposition sorry it was with nbc they so they had agreed to to do this one once lucille ball's uh, company was on on board they do the pilot NBC rejected the pilot. Yes. So it wasn't ever going to see the light of day. Um, and then they go back to it again. Lucille Ball puts up more money yeah. to do another pilot. I think um, it costs something like $200,000, almost yeah. $200,000, which is like yeah. how many uh, millions? Yeah, now it would be about $2 million or something it's like a, that. It's a huge, huge number. Yeah. Um, and again, Lucille Ball puts up half in order to make the second pilot. So this is where the second of three scripts, I think, comes into yeah. play. And they choose a more action-adventure style uh, story to tell but they also make a few other changes yes at the top of the list of those changes is uh the removal of number one so she was played by major barrett yeah uh who in the meantime i think in either in between or recently before or after uh wound up marrying uh gene roddenberry i don't think they got married yet but they were later? definitely having an they, affair yeah, they were at the together time. Yes. they were an item at yes. the time um and the, the network wanted to get rid of her or the well, they wanted to get rid Vulcan. of both. They yes. wanted to get rid of yes, yeah, but it came down to almost like a choice. Yeah, right? yeah. He could he could ultimately save one. He saved Spock for yeah. the show and married <laughs> Major <laughs> Bear later on. But she got a role in the in the she, she does she and she does come back as a nurse. Uh, Chapel. Chapel, thank you again. Uh, many times uh, over the course of the series, kind of like and a recurring Loxana character. Troy and the voice of the computer. computer yes. she, she plays a major role. Major plays in, a major role. <laughs> yes, in Star Trek <laughs> as a whole. Yes. Um, but yeah, so uh, those changes are made. Uh, the sets are a little the set's a little updated uh the costumes are a little updated everyone's wearing sweaters all of a sudden mm-hmm. uh it's it's just it's slightly different the um, biggest change though yeah getting rid of christopher pike yes um the actor was no longer able to commit to another uh pilot and shatner's contract doing another show had just ended and he was with who they wanted originally yes. william shatner yes. so they they managed to bring him back to play James T. Kirk, James R. Kirk well, in, in the, the first, <laughs> James Riberius Kirk. Uh, that was a joke pilot. I made. Yeah, the second pilot where no man has gone before. Mm-hmm. Um, and yeah, so there's also the addition of Uhura in this mm-hmm. in the this and section. And Sulu. And Sulu and Scotty. And McCoy. And McCoy. So, so the, the, the cast had yes. been assembled here for the second pilot. Yeah. Um, and it's, it is a much more active show. There's still, you know, some psychological stuff. There's talk about EMP or EMS. Yeah. Or what yeah. Is it? yeah it, well, I, I mean, the, the story centers around um, the, the Enterprise getting to the edge of the galaxy, which is Another thing in we'll come back universe, to. you can't go beyond the edge yeah. of the galaxy. But when they hit the edge of the galaxy, two members of the crew um, end up being affected somehow and develop these Psychic, uh, extra sensory yeah. abilities. Yeah. Um, and one of them happens to be Captain Kirk's old friend, and the other one is a, a beautiful visiting psychologist who's studying, of all things, how crew members 
uh, react under pressure. So great. You're welcome to the ship. Sure. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> Here's where we are. Yeah. Um, and of course, the, the man who's infected, who's, of course, a friend of Kirk's, yes. uh, you know, he succumbs to the to the raw power and he can't control himself. And so they try and dump him on this planet. Kirk um, has to wrestle with the idea of, you know, do I stay you know, true to my friend or do I save my ship? And yeah. it's like, a, a, I don't want to say it's a classic moral quandary for a captain because I don't think Picard would even question it. Yeah, he'd, he'd be, be like, see a Riker. And- <laughs> ship comes first, but yeah, there's there's no doubt. <laughs> the needs of the many. <laughs> exactly. Uh, but yeah, so that they've got this... Um, thing and it's it's ended with a fist fight of course uh, even though the guy has like godlike powers he somehow can succumb to kirk's just that damn good you know yeah. he, he can punch his way out of pretty much anything eventually crushes his friend to death under a pile of rubble uh the lady dies the too. lady dies as well um and yeah that's the end of the show mm-hmm. um there's it's it is tonally different mm-hmm. um and kirk has a lot of the part to play with that he's very you know he's quick and aggressive he mm-hmm. but he's also much more friendly and expressive like you were saying yeah. uh pike was just a, a very dour man very different than than the pike we yeah. get in stranger more, more sure. like a picard type captain yeah more stoic i think and then Cap- captain kirk comes in and is like yeah you know fist first right yeah. um so you get interesting characterizations from Leonard Nimoy playing Spock, who mm-hmm. becomes this more coldly logical, um, e- completely emotionless. Yeah. There's just no emotion. It's literally one of the first it's, lines of the yeah. thing is like, oh, you're human emotions. You know, like, yeah. it's, they haven't fleshed piloting. out the, the character entirely yet. But, a- absolutely. But and it's still, it's, I mean, the, the cast is a diverse crew. There's um, women on the bridge still. That was one of the reasons they wanted to get rid of number one is that, you know, 1964, oh, 65, yeah. you can't have a woman in a position of power. Um, so Roddenberry's like, well, fine, I'll put her at comms. And yeah. <laughs> um, you've got a Japanese-American actor playing your helmsman. Yeah. It's Or not Korean. helmsman. But, yeah. <laughs> you know, it's, it's, yeah. it's awesome. It's like this is a completely... Um, it's a new direction. It's a new, it's breaking ground. Yeah. This is something everybody has said to death, but, um, it, it, it had, yeah. it had the yeah. thing that the networks wanted most, which was that action adventure piece and yeah. the, the, you know, William Shatner martial arts sing his way across the screen at the end certainly provides that. Yeah. So the network picks up the pilot and orders a, a run of uh, 26 episodes, I think something like that. Yeah. Back in the day a when lot. network television was, uh, pumping out, crazy insane like we watched uh the center seat documentary series and it sounds like in the first two seasons what did he say that there was never a point in time when a member of the the writing staff or the, the production, production staff crew, yeah. was not in the hospital due to exhaustion yeah because the the schedule for production was so insane I mean, that, and that's still i mean never tv's thankfully mostly dead but there are you know even like i remember community yeah uh you know it's only a half hour mm-hmm. show but it was still uh the hours were so bad that mm-hmm. um that was part of what drove what's his name uh chevy Dan chase oh, no chevy chase, chase. To, to, to like yeah, yeah just be so upset and angry all the time because the hours are just crazy i mean you literally have to work uh six days a week usually sometimes seven maybe 12 12 16 yeah. 18 hour days especially when you're doing you're in the makeup chair mm-hmm. like all these guys like spock he was he was saying he's in the makeup chair for an hour and a half you get to someone like michael dorn the, as the other oh yeah God. as Worf later on like the, the cast members literally couldn't recognize him sometimes outside of makeup because he had to get there so early he was in makeup by the time they everybody arrived else on set. got set yeah. so i mean it just stuff like stories like that are just insane yeah. and it takes we'll talk about this later on it became really 
noticeable in season three, but you know, uh, William Shatner would show up on set for the first episode in great shape. <laughs> by the end of the series, he's getting chunky. Well, by the know, end of the season, yeah, exactly. It's like yeah. you you go for for twenty six episodes, and the stress gets to you, yeah. and and you're you, working nonstop yeah. for thirty weeks, and then straight. you go off on hiatus for the summer, and you get back in shape, and you start your next season looking great, and then the stress gets to you, and by the end of the season, it's like you can chart the the rise and fall of the stress levels of the crew by how they appear on screen, and um, that's uh, yeah, not an unusual thing, but it, but it was unusual for the time, I think, because Star Trek had um, really within that first season captured uh, an interesting segment of the television watching population. Mm-hmm. Um, I remember uh, it might have been uh, Rowan J. Coleman, his YouTube fantastic YouTube retrospective series on Star uh, the start all of the Star Treks, um, where he said that. Uh, the Nielsen ratings were starting to get into demographics at mm-hmm. this point in time. Before that, it was mostly just households, right? Yeah. How many households are watching? Mm-hmm. And even by that metric, Star Trek was blowing everything out of the water. Like, the, did it not say that the, the pilot that aired, half of all the televisions in the United States yeah. were tuned to... Yeah. Star Trek. Star Trek. I mean, and again, there were only three percent or ten percent of the population had Star Trek or had Star Trek had televisions, yeah. but they're all watching yeah. Star Trek. That's it's still a huge accomplishment, right? Yeah. Um, but when you start breaking down the demographic data, uh, Star Trek started to appeal to um, that coveted ad space mm-hmm. that you know eighteen to thirty-five year olds um, traditionally very well, not traditionally, but this group. Uh, highly educated um, professionals, so it's a it's a lucrative spot yeah, for them to be in. For sure, and yeah. so the network realizes they have this golden goose. They're not going to want to uh, skimp on it. You think? And then they skimp on it, but um, well, I mean, yeah, the, I mean, the, it was the most expensive show and yes. television, except for Mission Impossible, which also was Desi Lu. Yes, which was also Desi <laughs> Lu. We found out, but it was yeah, about you know only twenty thousand dollars an episode cheaper than mm-hmm. than that, and even then they were cutting a lot of corners. I mean, you, especially by the time season three rolls around, yeah, we'll get to that yes. later on. But um, yeah, it was a very expensive show, so you know you did have to if it didn't keep up those ratings to the point where it's you know beating out the other two yeah. networks, it's not uh, worth it. It's not worth it for them anymore. Even so. if it's a groundbreaking, lucrative yeah. golden goose. Yeah. Um, so this creative team that's assembled, familiar names to any Trekkie. Trekkie? Trekker? Trekkie? Trekkie. Is it? Is it? I, yeah. I, I've heard some people get really upset when you use Trekkie. Really? They prefer Trekker. Okay, I always remember being Trekkie when I was growing up. So. Yeah, I, I think mean, I think you know, your parents were original fans. Maybe they embrace it a little more. Yeah. I don't know. First wave fans, second wave fans. Yeah, I don't like know. feminism, the terms change. You gotta just <laughs> sure. roll with it. Roll with it. Um, so yeah, like Jean Alcoon, uh, Dorothy Fontana. These are all people brought in to write and work on the first season, which is amazing. The first <laughs> season of the original series is the best of the three. I will die on this hill. Oh, wow. You are um, wrong. Jesus. <laughs> this is why we have a podcast, so we wow. can argue about this. It's a really strong first season. There's a lot of really it's good true. episodes. And yep. and it's maybe in looking back at it that you realize how good it is. Because it does set up so many of the things that the series comes back to. And then yeah. the franchise returns to as well, um, which we'll talk about here as well. Yep. Are you out of your Vulcan mind? 
I think one of the ways it does succeed really well is that it really does fulfill that initial vision. Mm. Um, you know, it is it is a it's a high minded sci fi show that's a space western at the same time, um, and it's it really does have moments of both. And I feel like the where the show really really shines, especially in the in this first season, is when it achieves both. Uh, to really high standard. I feel like, you know, some of the episodes we'll talk about later on, but, you know, like City on the Edge of Forever mm-hmm. is a kind of silly premise, but it becomes really emotionally moving. And then there's Balance of Terror, which is a sub submarine movie, <laughs> but it, but is a really tense. And, yeah, yeah, it's a, exactly. <laughs> it, it works well both ways. Mm-hmm. And it's, it's just a really, uh, the, yeah, these early ones really set the tone for what's coming. There's a lot of, also not great episodes though there's a lot of um i will say this season is the worst for having um just god there are so many gods uh, yes. that can just magically control and that, absolutely and that everything. kirk can outsmart yeah in one way or another uh, yeah yeah okay that's that's a fair criticism <laughs> there, like i think there's like i think i counted like seven or eight um everything from you know charlie x or whatever his name is like he's got godlike powers just yeah. out of nowhere and to then the greek gods that they that they come yeah. across yeah yeah so i mean like there, there's a lot of them in this season especially and it is and that's kind of a again a a fairly basic sci-fi trope mm-hmm. of writing from the sixties mm-hmm. is like, well, what do you, what do you do when there is someone who just has absolute power over to you? How do you manage that? Mm-hmm. Um, and it's something that the show grapples with in different ways at different times and, mm-hmm. and with different kind of parameters around it. Um, but it often winds up being a very similar kind of uh, story to tell, but it is, uh, they manage to make it work better each time. But I will say those are probably my least favorite episodes in this yeah, season. They're not as they're not as engaging and I think it, it does speak you're right, speak to a sense of um superiority that I think a lot of people in the sixties were feeling about humanity. There was an optimism that humanity could achieve this mm-hmm. utopian future, even in the midst of, you know, nineteen sixty six, the Vietnam War is kind of, you know, ramping up yep. and um civil rights movement there's a lot of things that are not so great that are you know struggles but you you think that humanity is going to achieve something greater so yes of course captain kirk the you know the best of the best of that humanity has to yeah. offer is totally going to be able to best a god right yeah, yeah. so weekly <laughs> yeah regularly this is just his thing he does yeah um, yeah, and he—I mean—he does have, and this is where his approach of punch first, yes. ask questions later yeah. is, is kind of established too. Um, yeah, so I mean, he—he he really does. There's a lot of him fighting guys, especially at the end of the, a lot of climaxes of the episodes are just him uh, beating guys up. We'll talk without about, a shirt, without often without a shirt. Yeah, yeah. he was. Here's another thing. <laughs> Lindsay's commented on it many times. Uh, all the guy, all the characters in this were just good-looking people. Very good-looking. Uh, I think the sex helped sell this show a lot more yes. than uh, it worked. But what's funny is people thought Shatner was going to be the draw, and it ended up being Nimoy Leonard Nimoy as, as Spock. Spock. Not, not Leonard Nimoy. Appeal. Not necessarily, Spock. <laughs> but Spock himself. And especially when you get um, Amok Time, which is... Uh, that's season two. But season yeah, yeah, two, yeah, yeah, yeah. the the whole um, well, no, even in the naked the naked time too. Yeah, that he's crying and he's emotional yeah. in that in that event. Um, it's uh, well, and there's that other episode. I don't remember the name of it now, but where the he one falls where, in love. Yeah, he goes to the planet yeah. with the spores, and yeah. it just makes him relax. And but I mean, those, <laughs> that's, this is what makes he's he was the sexy character. It's the same thing with the next generation. It was Data who was the sex symbol, yeah. right? It wasn't. Like, it wasn't weirdly, Riker. Yeah, yeah. You you would it just goes against. 
type. Men in Hollywood don't know what women. Well, that's the thing. I don't think I don't think it was intended at all. No, it was literally not at all. just Spike, Spock is the rational, super rational alien whose cold exterior is just part of yeah. you know his charm, mm-hmm. and the charm worked on the ladies. Yeah. Let's just put it that way. Um, so, so there's that that whole uh, approach as well that helps with the ratings, I think. Um, but the stories themselves uh, are kind of agnostic about all that. Kirk, I don't think he sleeps with anyone in this season, does he? I can't remember now. But there's there's still <laughs> that sense that he could. Like even if yeah. I can't remember if he does either, but it's uh it's he's a He's a, he's a virile captain. Yeah, he's, he's gonna. Yeah, I think at one point they say he's like he just turned thirty or something, and like. Mm. Wow. Yeah. So I, I mean, he gives off a bit of an older vibe, but again, everybody looked older back then. But uh, <laughs> you know, but it actually that that brings up an interesting side anecdote, which is not a positive one for this series. But um, there was another character who initially started the yes. season, uh, Janice Rand. Um, she was the yeoman. Uh, and constantly she, talked about as as a sex object yes. for most of the side characters, never by Kirk. Although it was the it was one, hinted at the, well, a in the lot. one episode where he splits into two. Uh, his, yeah, it's, his it's evil a little side. it's a little Twin Peaks, right? He's yeah. got his bad side that you know acts on these yeah. sexual urges towards yeah. Janice Rand, which sadly possibly mirrored what happened to the Her, actress yeah. um, off screen. She accused an executive that. Uh, NBC of sexual assault, I believe. And, yeah, and she was like, oh, um, she was like, from the that. show. Yeah. Um, but they they kept on good terms. She did come back for the motion picture. Yes, and she also came back for I think four and six yeah, she came back a couple well. more. Times, yeah, she came so, back a couple of couple um, of the movies. Yeah, which is great. But um, yeah, so there there's there's the sex appeal. There's the fighting bits, um, and. The technology. Let's talk about technology yeah. a little bit because yeah. this is um, early Trek, so it's not quite as evolved as Next Gen, where we get like the holodecks and replicators. But yeah. you've got like prototypes of these things. Yeah. Um, you do have transporters, which yeah. were famously invented so that the network didn't have to pay for uh, the ship to land on an on a a planet every episode yeah. you could just beam them from one place to the other kind of amazing yeah. now it's recognizable as that is what star trek is yeah. communicators as well um kind of forecasting uh, pagers and cell phones and, yeah, yeah. um there was a, a proto replicator that produced food for people you would have these little they look like wooden blocks like that you'd play with in a kid's playset, and they'd have like a recipe or a program on it. Yeah. You slip it into the machine and, and there out comes, out comes your, your roast soup. beef dinner, or yeah. tea, Earl Grey hot. Yeah. Which um, is, uh, Lindsay, a great uh, segue to today's sponsor. Yes. This episode <laughs> sponsored by Food Cubes. So it's been a long day at the office. The boss is on your ass. As always, you didn't even get to get your Ractigeno break today. And when you get home, all you want to do is fill all your nutritional needs in as quick and efficient a way as possible. We've all been there. So you can get on with your day. Thankfully for you, food cubes are available now at the food synthesizer nearest you. Food cubes are the future of eating, and the future is right now, Lindsay. You're laughing, but you're not. I am laughing. The next great evolution in food synthesizers do away with unnecessary extravagances like presentation or flavor. It's just food, mostly, we think. And it's going to fill you up. What more do you really need? Available in blue, red, and neon green, food cubes pack all the day's essential nutrients, food cubes, and a whopping 500 calories into each cube. A proprietary blend of Kurtzman and Gupta glucose matrices, food cubes offer an unparalleled dining experience for those who need to fill their stomach as fast as possible. 
Don't waste time chewing or slurping your food. Get on with the Starfleet types who already already made the jump and have tried food cubes today. That is a really <laughs> hard thing to say. If it's good enough for Starfleet, it's got to be good enough for your average Joe like me. I tried few food cubes once. <laughs> And, with and their time release, properly with ever their since. time release properties, it's the also, it also means it's the last thing I've eaten. Three weeks ago, that's how good they are. They just last for weeks. So join the time conscious among us and go to your food synthesizer today and order yourself up some food cues. <laughs> Nailed it. <laughs> I don't think they're going to sponsor us anymore after that. Yeah, well, too bad. <laughs> It's hard to say. You say food cubes three food times. Food cubes, food cubes, food cubes. Okay. You're, okay. Again, I'm just stupid, I guess. But that's fine. It's fine. It's fine. Uh, so where were we? We were talking... Uh, okay, we just talked about technology. Anything yeah. else you wanted to mention? Um, I think the, the just the general idea that tech wasn't... Tech was just something... Like any technology, the definition of technology is something that... It's a tool you use to make your job easier. Mm-hmm. And that's what technology was. It wasn't life-saving. In fact, there are a few episodes in, in these early Star Trek episodes that are um, kind of wary of technology. They're yeah. not necessarily in season one, but like um, the episode where they have an artificial intelligence that yeah. Richard Dr. Richard Daystrom is going to install and... Yeah, well, we'll get there. Yeah, is, yeah, yeah. Or, or um, the, there is a first season episode about drone warfare, um, a taste of Armageddon, where there's there's a sense well, that technology may not be. Yeah, it's like uh, they've become trapped. Yeah, we'll talk about that. Episode yeah, in a bit, but, but tech but, yeah. doesn't solve every problem. It solves some problems. It's still a tool, but it's not omnipresent. There's still like analog buttons that you press. It's not like the Elcar's touchscreen. Um, you don't have yeah. communicators built into your, you know badge that you, you're not carrying them around with you yeah. everywhere so technology is is not a is not um it's it's there for it, what it's used for but sci-fi it, it it grows in the 20 years between the original series and the next gen by the time you get to yeah. next gen they're able to imagine a future where technology is just built into everything you do yeah well right? i think that's fair because in the 60s yeah, totally. technology really wasn't there it was still a very analog the earliest computers were still giant ibm yeah. bands that took up room. in the table warehouse yeah so like it was yeah. it was understandable that oh I told, i'm not criticizing i'm saying it's it's a sign of the times it's it's yeah, showing well, what they imagined all, yeah technology was just that's what more tools to make does. totally yeah it just totally. reflects whatever you got at the moment and extrapolates to the future and i think but i think it, I, I think it is very optimistic i think there's again there's no black mirror uh twilight zone no. there, there there is a moral to each of the stories usually but it's not um it's not pessimistic in tone the the, the tone is always positive they overcome whatever the challenges of the week um sometimes through the use of technology sometimes through just human ingenuity mm-hmm. or sometimes uh you know you just call mom and dad and Trelane gets grounded you know like there's lots of there's lots of ways of dealing it um but it is very optimistic and that that's really a key part of of what makes star trek trek is that um it does have this hopeful energy to it in a lot of cases it's optimistic in an american-centric way yeah yeah and that's that's, again a product of the times it's the 1960s america is the greatest nation on earth um so yes of course you're going to have the you know constitution of the united states being the basis for a whole civilization um, that that's the season that's the third season, that's I think. Third season yeah. um but uh you also have i i think one criticism i will levy at kirk um, i was reading the star trek and philosophy book recently and um some good points brought up about how kirk um 
kind of is a bit of a jerk in the sense that he enforces his own view of the world on certain civilizations that he comes into contact with. And that is something that um, is done away with in large part. I mean, the Prime Directive is introduced early on. Yep, it's here in the first season, yep. Prime Directive being that you don't interfere with the uh, development of a civilization that has not achieved warp capabilities. Um, You need to let them develop on their own. But Kirk knows all and will kill the god that protects your people if it gives you freedom yeah um which may not be a freedom that you actually want and that's something that it's a bit of a blind spot i think that early kirk has i think by the time you get to the movies and into the 80s and 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 the trek that comes up there it's It's a little bit different but um yeah and i I think the only other thing to talk about as a as a whole for this setup Mm -hmm. um is the characters themselves yeah and the fact that um they are a li- I've, it's a complaint I see all the time written about Star Trek and I kind of get it I also kind of don't um, but that the characters are a little bland because they're so positive and so good um, I feel like it doesn't really apply in uh, the original series I feel like Next Generation is maybe and DS9 and maybe Voyager are a little more prone to that but um, in, in the, the original series it's interesting that um, Kirk is really not just the main character he's really the only character I, I would say Spock gets uh, a lot of good time and a bit of good character development especially in season two but yeah. in season one he's really kind of uh he and mccoy are both what's well, the angel and angel on kirk's shoulder <laughs> to an extent but I, I feel like that's not that that dynamic isn't even really finalized in this yeah. first season it's it's really kind of it happens occasionally it starts, yeah there's hints of it like yeah. where mccoy is very emotional and passionate and 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 the that part of the kirk psyche is represented there and then there's much more coldly logical spock it gets a little bit more nuanced as the series develops but yeah and but I, I feel like even spock and mccoy as those two main supporting characters don't really have much character development on no, their own then that's something that um star trek didn't really start to do until next gen where you get a much it's, it feels like much more of an ensemble cast in the sense yeah. that every character gets episodes that are devoted to talking about who they are whereas here it doesn't matter who sulu is it doesn't matter who ahura is they're just they they exist to fill a role in the place where they work yeah and that's it's not a bad thing it's just a different it's the way that the shows were done in the 60s i mean this was it was episodic television everything kind of resets at the start of the next episode you don't there's not a lot of consequence no so so why would you bother you know referencing you know, a, a family event in Kirk's life yeah. from season one in season three. Yeah. By the time you get to the movies, then you have, you know, Kirk's son and there's some psychological resonance. Well, Spock. And you Spock, know, the yeah, death exactly. and the rebirth, right? So, but it yeah. doesn't necessarily play a role and it, it shouldn't. That's not what TV was doing at the no, time. This no. was action adventure wagon train to the stars yeah absolutely and i i i just it contributes to mm-hmm. i remember commenting on this when we were watching the season many times is you would be like oh this is so awkward or cringe or something i'm mean, like well it's 60s television yeah. and it's 60s sci-fi television yeah. like it's it is very of the time um i feel like the other series have that as well obviously yes um but some feel a bit more timeless than others there are episodes in here and i think those are what we're going to talk about next mm-hmm. that that really do feel like uh they, they, they approach that level of timelessness. Take us out. So let's talk about the first episode aired, The Man Trap. Mm. Um, so it wasn't the pilot that they shot. The first or the second pilot was not the first episode. It was the third episode that they aired. Yep. Um, so The Man Trap, uh, the one with the salt vampire, um, pretty classic 
setup where you've got uh, it's Kirk and McCoy at the beginning who are kind of um, struggling with this concept of this woman who, who can become anybody. Yes. And yes. So she approach she appears to McCoy as a, a former lover. Um, she appears as a beautiful woman to other people. They all see her as they want to see her, and she uses that in order to suck the. Yeah. the you know, salt, the salt out, out of their, of their bodies, bodies yeah, which is, yeah. you know, pretty grim. Um, but it's a, it's a classic monster of the week kind of yeah. setup that Star Trek does really well. A lot of the, uh, the episodes we're going to be talking about, um, bring that up the, we have the Romulans, we've got the Klingons, we've got Khan, we've got the Gorn. I mean, every episode seems to throw some weird alien species into the mix that the mostly human crew has to, battle and overcome and, yeah overcome yeah yeah and, and and the man trap is um it's actually the one episode i was thinking of that mccoy really gets some character because yeah, this is like yeah. the lost love and he he struggles with that a little bit when mm-hmm. it comes time to like you know confront her and and face up to who she really is mm-hmm. um but yeah it's it's otherwise yeah it's a very uh standard episode for mm-hmm. this season i feel like yeah if you watch the man trap you're going to kind of get a sense of what the rest yeah. of the, the ser- series is going to be like for yeah. this first season, especially. Yeah. Um, but yeah, it's, it is, it works, you know, it, it has those dynamics. It has Kirk wanting to punch people. Uh, you know, yeah. th- I think he threatens the scientist or something at one point, if I remember correctly. Oh, and it beats the shit out of the salt vampire. Or she beats the shit out of him. <laughs> yeah. I think she beats him up. I don't yeah. remember exactly. Um, but yeah, uh, so there, there's, it's, it's a fine episode yeah. on its own, um, but it's not really super memorable. Um, which well, again, the salt vampire is pretty memorable. Yeah. She's she kind of scary. Yeah, and she shows up in Lower in Decks. Lower Decks later yeah. on, and that's true. Yeah. Uh, like I mentioned, we've got the introduction of some pretty classic um, Trek yeah. villains in yeah. this season. Yeah. The baddies. Um, the, yeah, the big bads, right? Mm. The Klingons, the Romulans, uh, Khan, who famously returns in the movies, is yeah. one of the most memefied uh, moments in all of Trek history. Yeah. Um, the Gorn... Trelane, uh, yeah. who may the you know fan theories suggest might be a Q yeah. part of a Q continuum. Yeah. Um, these are all uh, introduced in the first season in pretty classic episodes, and I think um, what well, let's talk about Balance of Terror. I think we've yeah. just watched the Strange New World season finale. Spoilers talks a lot about the Romulans. Yes. Does does a pretty good job referencing Balance of Terror. Yeah. Um, this is yeah our first introduction to the Romulans, who are this like cold. Uh, imperial. Yeah. Is it true that the Romulans were based on Romans? Is yeah, that the, yeah, the whole the thing? Ro- yeah. I mean, Romulus and Remus were the two yeah. gods or the two people. Who but I mean, like Roman Rome. civilization. Yeah. Like well, you've got. That's exactly the point. Okay. Yeah. This okay. is a direct parallel. Absolutely. Yeah. So, I mean, even I think they call them Centurion or, or Quaestor or something like that. I don't remember what the titles are of the, the, the captains. I know that the they're ship. captains or commanders. Yeah. Yeah. Which is always very confusing. I'm like, why is, it, why is there a commander in the captain's chair? But. Because they command. Because they command. Yeah, yeah. Makes they don't sense. captain. Okay. <laughs> uh, yeah, so I mean, and uh, th- this episode is just. Uh it's really noteworthy for a lot of reasons. First mm-hmm. of all, uh, the thing that always sticks with me is like they don't know who the Romulans are. They've, They've never been, seen them. No, nobody's ever seen yeah. them. They were at war. Mm-hmm. They fought only space battles, probably, obviously, mm-hmm. and then they they 
brokered peace without ever seeing the other one. Yeah. And they have this neutral zone. Yeah. Um, and I mean, you could talk about the parallels of the neutral zone and something like, I don't know, Austria or something like an unaligned yeah. country in Europe between, you know, these two competing empires and, and, uh, the risk that at any point all at war could break out between mm-hmm. them. Um, and, but, but the, the reveal of the Romulans when they show up on screen and they look like Vulcans. Yeah. And there's that moment where Kirk tells the guy like, leave any bigotry in your quarters. There's no room for it on the bridge. Do I make myself clear? Yeah. There, there's that really telling moment which is you know when did star trek get woke oh about then yeah <laughs> if not much much earlier um but yeah so that that's that was really a, a really incredible scene to yeah. watch because you're like oh my god like how are they connected to the vulcans and spock doesn't even know anything yeah, about them which it's, is amazing it's really cool like uh because the romans do come back and they're such an interesting antagonist and there is a, there is lore that's built up around them being yeah. related to the vulcans and there's a split at some point in their past and so i mean it, it all kind of makes sense but those seeds are planted in this episode yeah. in such a curious and fascinating way that yeah. none of the characters there's no dramatic irony yeah the the audience knows just as much as the characters which is really cool that's a neat way to to unveil what would become one of the central Trek villains. Yeah, and it, and it allows to have that kind of parallel because they are shown to be very calculated. I mean, yeah. that's if there's one word for the Romulans for the rest of the series yeah. and all the other series, uh, it's calculating. Mm-hmm. It's, you know, they, they're always a step ahead. They they, they plan so meticulously yeah. and that's the source of their power. So there, there is a connection to the Vulcan logic yeah. and the, the reasoning and stuff like that. Um, and it's really helped out in this episode by... Uh, Sarek. Yeah, well, <laughs> it's not Sarek. I, I always forget the actor who plays him, but the actor who played uh, the commander for the Romulan ship in this yes. episode uh, went on to play uh, Spock's father in yeah. subsequent shows, uh, the movies and uh, Next Generation. Yeah. Um, and so it, it's he's he's really the perfect uh, encapsulation of what the Romulans are all about, which is you know scheming and uh, always trying to think two or three steps ahead. It's yep. not so much that they have plans it's that they are trying to figure out what your plans are yes yeah, so and then they, they make can, their plans yes. to match to their plan 5d chess yeah all the time yeah and it's it's great that way yeah and the episode itself kind of just mirrors that because it's it's literally a cat and mouse game of yes uh between the enterprise and this romulan bird of prey which has the cloak but yeah. it can't fire when it's cloaked and it can't uh go very fast because it drains all the power yeah. and stuff so it becomes this submarine yeah you know uh i haven't actually watched a sub movie in a long time but like a das boot i'm guessing i have never seen it or yeah you five seven one where it's like october yeah yeah there's there's this tense i don't know where the bad guy is yeah but they could be anywhere um, and the and crews I, and of both ship are working hard. And we have to, to do part. something because they're going to attack us. And yeah. they're and and if we attack at the wrong time or if we overstep, there will be war. Like what we do is going to have major repercussions. But we can't see where yeah. they are. Yeah, and we can't. Are we defending ourselves? Are yeah. we attacking? Like yeah, there's, there's so many. Yeah. It's 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 um, militarily a very interesting episode yeah. in terms of like how. Yeah warfare happens and yeah. how commanders strategize and things like that um it's probably one of the best most exciting episodes for that yeah that i can think of especially in season one yeah. for sure in season yeah. one and and that's something that we didn't talk about a lot but there is a whole discussion we'll talk about it when we get to the the federation and starfleet mm-hmm. but 
you know, how much the show meant to show a military ship right. versus an exploration ship. Yeah. Uh, there's, you know, they advised, they got advice from both NASA and the Air Force, yeah. I, I think. So, well, in the design of both. the ship and the, the yeah. sounds of the ship, it, it does, they they use the ranks of the Navy. Yeah. Um, but they are explorers. They yeah. have a mission to explore strange new worlds, but yet they're engaging the enemy and yeah, they have like, photon torpedoes. Yeah. And, and I mean, it, it just, this episode alone goes such a long way to establishing the idea that there's this lore and this mm-hmm. history to yeah, Star it, Trek. Yeah, it, it embiggens the entire yeah. world, doesn't yeah. it? Right? Because it's not just the enemy of the week. This is an enemy of the past. Yes. Who's now the super menacing enemy yeah. of the present. Yeah. Um, and of course it ends with Kirk outsmarting them. Of course. And they, I think the ship blows itself up. I think they, they basically, they're going to lose anyways. So they just, uh, instead of getting, allowing the Enterprise to capture them, I think they self-destruct if I remember correctly. Mm. It's been a while since I, since we watched it, but, um, it's a, yeah, it's a really great mm-hmm. episode. One of my favorites mm-hmm. from not just the first season, but all time in the original yeah. series for sure. Death to the opposition. Um, in contrast to the Romulans, we have the super emotional and passionate Klingons who yes. are also introduced in season one in yeah. the episode, Errand of Mercy. Yeah. Um, Klingons, popularly considered at the time to be sort of a Soviet stand-in, but later have become sort of, well, and, and, uh, I believe they were described as like Mongol, the Mong- Mongol horde with a spaceship or something like that. <laughs> like this is kind yeah. of how they were presented. Yeah. But eventually they develop into this like Bushido Japanese samurai. Yeah, very way honorific. Of the warrior, yeah, yeah, you know, yeah. um, not quite as present here in that sense. There, but no. they they. The, again, the seeds have been planted. Yeah. They look very different from the Klingons that we're used to, but that. Well, if you grew up in the nineties, if you're yes. an original fan, this well, is well, yeah, yeah, exa- yeah. I think everybody imagines Klingons looking like Worf these yeah, days. Yeah. Nobody thinks of them looking like just white dudes. Whoever the office. guy was, yeah. yeah. Um, but they they appear in this another kind of. I don't want to say it's not a military strategy because the Enterprise is not in a position to strategize. It's really just Kirk and co who are um trapped on this planet where the klingons are uh they're trying to take it over yeah and so they get wrapped up in this and and they're trying to protect what they think is a peaceful civilization that Mm -hmm. is kind of innocent and in the end they reveal themselves to be much 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 more another, powerful another godlike figure yeah um, toying with this the cast but of they're the not just to- toying with the enterprise they're toying with the klingons yeah. too and so both of these uh, great powers who again have been fighting for a very long time so again the lore is being yeah. you know um, expanded um, they're both on the losing end i guess of yeah. this it's it's a great introduction in the sense that you get um, the klingon ruthlessness there's a bit of klingon violence that is particular to that species that shows up in this episode um and they're and they're villains they are absolute villains so this is what makes the later inclusion of the klingons as allies to the federation um and even by the time we get to picard are they not part of the federation i don't know was there not a klingon i think i think they end up becoming part of the federation by the end of the 24th century so um but they start off here yeah. As as absolute villains of the week. Yeah. And and it's they're really interesting in this week because it is um you know, it 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 again it, the whole episode kind of sets you up to compare them against Kirk and Starfleet. Mm-hmm. And the end result is that these 
neutral aliens, super powerful aliens revealed that they're very similar. Mm-hmm. And it's really kind of a rebuke of Kirk, especially because he's, you know, he's punched first, asked questions yes. later again. He's setting off bombs and trying to get the population to rise up against the Klingons. Yeah. Um, and the aliens are like, no, you're, you're literally just fighting. Like yeah. you just grow you, up, grow up. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Get off my planet and grow yeah. up. Yeah. Um, and so that, that kind of twist at the end is, is great yeah. because yeah, they are shown to be just bloodthirsty and, and I remember Kirk gives like a big speech about, oh, they're going to come in and enslave you and, and, you know, take all your resources and starve you to death and all this stuff. And, uh, the guys are like, well, if that's the case, then, you know, whatever. But Kirk just can't take that yeah. for an answer. And, and it's amazing because the, the Klingons all the way to Star Trek six, undiscovered country become the, the nemesis for, yeah. uh, for Kirk and watching him, slowly over the course of those movies especially in six come to accept the Klingons for mm-hmm. you know who they are essentially mm-hmm. um is one of the best arcs in in Star Trek in, in my opinion at least yeah it's growth it's growth it's growth yeah for Captain Kirk yeah uh, speaking of growth for Captain Kirk, let's talk about Space Seed. Yeah. Let's talk about Khan. Khan yeah. Noonien Singh. Yeah. Um, he is I what makes Khan such a great villain, Aiden? I would say he's better than everybody. He he's the yeah. one who 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 bests Kirk. Yeah, um, I, a couple of times. <laughs> a couple of times, and it's it's just he's he's just he's just he's smarter. He's physically stronger. When they have the fight scene, I think yeah. does not Khan win? I can't remember now. Um, but well, and and he's he is designed from the beginning to be like a Superman. Yeah, he is yeah. a genetically engineered human from the eugenics wars period in Trek history, which is the nineties in the nineteen nineties. Yeah. And <laughs> he and his cohort are. Um, cryogenically frozen and sent off into space and Kirk and crew um, thaw them out and from the seed yes, in space yes and, very clear um, title yeah. and then they want to take over yeah. because that's their goal that's their whole purpose that's what he does he's he's a fighter exactly <laughs> and at the end of that episode they deposit him and the people on an, on a planet and they say you can conquer go, this planet yeah, yeah. go, go civilize yeah, yeah. <laughs> here yeah. stay here yeah. And of course, Khan has to come back at some point, so we get him in uh, the movies. Yeah, yeah. yeah. But um, it's yeah, he's he is designed from the outset to be better than everybody else, yeah. and the fact that Kirk kind of beats him but doesn't yeah. makes him like he's so memorable. And it's Ricardo Montalban's yeah, you know that's Absolutely. him that's as Khan yeah. makes him so engaging and charismatic, and you almost feel bad for them because it wasn't their faults. Like this is not this is something that they were engineered for. Yeah. It's almost like like they don't have a choice. Yeah, and and he seems almost initially gracious about yeah. about everything. Like he's very charming mm-hmm. in it, and I mean that's the the crux of the episode is that he charms one of the female crew yeah. members and and uh, you know gets her to help him over take over the ship yeah. and everything. Um, doesn't work out in the end, of course, but that's that's the that's the gist of it. And you really do get a sense watching it that yeah, this guy could do it because he's he's that good. He, he's a cult leader. Yeah, and that, yes, I think that's yes. what that's what it is. Is we look at it now and we know that there are so many cult leaders that this is this is how they act yeah. right we've seen it so many times in jonestown or heaven's gate or whatever and yeah. so um seeing it at a time when i, I mean it was the 60s there were communes and things like that <laughs> yeah. that later became cultish yeah. right uh so maybe there was you know some prognosticating going on here in a <laughs> Probably, sense yeah but uh but definitely as as a as a leader he's not 
he's Manson-esque in a way too, right? Like yeah. that, that might be the best without yeah. being that violent. Well, and it's, and it's odd because I remember watching it. We were, we were like, Oh, why is she into him? And, yeah. but why were women into Manson? But yeah. they were right. Like yeah. it's just like, does some people have that particular he's, magnetism? Yeah, he's draws and, them in. And he gets it and it, and it kind of, it works really well. And the fact, yeah, the fact that he gets under Kirk's skin and, kills his best friend and yeah. you know in, in <laughs> yeah. spoilers ahead, are we yeah. are we are we saying spoilers for the movies that came out in the 70s i, 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 I don't, don't know I, I don't think so but yeah he's he he bests kirk yeah and that's it's memorable it's it's great another memorable fight scene yes kirk arena and the gorn. yes uh, the gorn so controversial figure now since we've seen the gorn portrayed in a couple of different ways yeah. and, and there's you know considerable conversation within the fan community about uh, uh what is canon we're not going to get into that the no. gorn in arena are amazing similar to the romulans they're not seen they're, yes. they're a villain that we don't see until we see them yeah. and um and this is another situation where Kirk goes and has to fight the bad guy f- to save the Enterprise. Yeah. And there's just a, an omnipresent being or species that is overseeing this and then in the end decides to be magnanimous and lets them both go because the captains have both fought so bravely. And, well, and Kirk, Kirk can't lets, kill the yeah, Gorn Kirk go. Yeah, Kirk lets the Gorn live. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, sorry, he does let the... I said he can't. He does let the Gorn <laughs> he live. He does, yeah. Um, so yeah, it's... But, but the Gorn... The first time we see a species that is entirely reptilian, yeah, not humanoid, although they do walk on two legs, yeah. But it's a full like latex bodysuit. It looks ridiculous nowadays. It's so silly, but at the time, well, I don't. I'm pretty sure it looked silly back then. But you got the sense like this yeah. is not a human. Like yeah, yeah, yeah. And and they did, you know, the Gordon do communicate with him at some point mm-hmm. um which again is interesting for stranger world stuff but anyways they they are, they do talk a little bit yeah and so you do get the sense that even despite the appearance um there is a oh, mind there they have they have ships capable yeah ships. i mean yeah so they yeah exactly um so there is there's this whole um realization that mm-hmm. kirk goes through and this is what makes it memorable for me is the fact that he doesn't kill him at the end because yeah. the whole episode is basically him building this gun yeah. essentially is is how he defeats him um and it's it's kind of silly but um you know you think oh yeah he got it and then that's going to kill him and he's going to win in the end mm-hmm. um but the star trek twist is that no he doesn't kill him he has he allows he forgives him and and understands like well we were both put in this situation and you know um yeah, like it's not it's not a great situation to be in, but here we are, so let's make the best of it. Quality of mercy, right? Yeah, yeah. exactly. Yeah. Um, and then a final villain that we want to talk about that uh, I think is just interesting in the broad, grander scheme of Star Trek is Trelane, yeah. um, in the Squire of Gothos, um, presented as like a kind of a poncy foppish seventeenth, yeah. eighteenth century aristocrat. Yeah. But uh, um, is in his, in essence just a petulant child who's yeah. been kind of banished or or cast aside by his omniscient, omnipresent, godlike species, yeah. I guess. Yeah. Um, and he just you know he wants to see the world burn. He's just you know wrecking shit and and making people's lives miserable. Yeah. But in his own kind of gleeful way that reminds a lot of fans of of John Delancey's characterization of Q in the next generation. Surely I would be shocked if, if Delancey didn't base Q and his kind of 
impish trickster figure on Trelane yeah. to some degree, which is why people want they they want to believe that Trelane is. Many of them want to believe that he's part of the Q continuum. Yeah, and, and we do know later on that the Q do have children and that yes. they do grow up and they have, you know, things. We haven't gotten to those episodes of Voyager no. yet, but they, they're fun, Lindsay, let me tell you. <laughs> um, so, yeah, so, I mean, it's, it's again, it's an interesting one. It is one of those, like, oh, there's a god. What are you going to do against a god? I don't know. We'll figure it out. Yeah. And they just, we'll like, logic them we'll to logic. <laughs> Exactly. And, like, there's a whole thing about, like, the mirror and maybe that's sources power and all yeah. this. There's, there's... A bit it's of a ridiculous. Mystery. It's silly. It is. It's, but Trelane is a pretty memorable character. Yes, and right? it's very fun to watch. Mm-hmm. And that's again, yeah, that energy makes Q Q mm-hmm. uh, in the at the end of the day. So it's it's really great that way. Um, and yeah, it's it's a fun episode to watch. Um, not my favorite. Yeah, but I mean, as a standalone episode, it's probably probably one that I could show to someone who's not a fan of Star Trek and and have them maybe enjoy it a little bit. Yeah, yeah, that's fair. Yeah, you don't need you don't need much. Uh, exposure to the world at all no it's true so beyond the villains of star trek we also have uh in season one some interesting philosophical conversations and uh um the broadening of the lore in a different way with an episode like menagerie mm-hmm. um which calls back christopher pike from the unaired original pilot um previous captain of the enterprise that spock's served under and his um dilemma i guess of being having suffered some terrible injury he's now trapped in the beep chair the infamous beep chair unable to speak except to uh through his computer um give yes or no to give yes or no answers with the beeps of his chair and it's a terrible life for a former starfleet captain and i think that's recognized by everybody on the show and spock goes against um, Kirk and everybody's all orders, Starfleet, all yeah, of Starfleet, yeah, yeah. to yeah. rescue his former captain and provide him some measure of uh, solace. Yeah, by going back to the same planet where yes. uh, the Telosians, you know, were, uh, you know, and the, the Telosians at the end of the cage are so powerful mm-hmm. because they can make anybody see anything with their mind that Starfleet has banned all contact with them yeah. because obviously they could just, you know, confuse them into blowing up all of Starfleet or something, right? So, um, so Spock taking Pike back to the planet uh, is against all the rules. Uh, Spock's such a rule breaker. And <laughs> uh, yeah, and and basically it's a clip show, really. Yeah. It, it just does reinforce, uh, it just reuses all the, the clips from yeah. the cage to retell the story of the cage and then also why Spock is doing this to bring mm-hmm. him back. Um, and it, But it is, it is interesting for, A, the fact that they wanted to wrap up Pike's character. Yeah. Um, and B, it, uh, it's... As far as clip shows go, it's pretty interesting because there is a dynamic there about like why was Spock like basically yes. it takes the form of a trial like they're like Spock you're going to get court martialed for why did you break the rules and send us on this, this planet this and order. then and then he explains why like this this species can help yeah. Pike in a way nobody else can yeah. and as his first officer or as his former former, first former science officer yes. yeah. at least um, you know and I, friends like and friend, I'm yeah. I'm it 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 deepens Spock's backstory in a way that um, no other character really gets in the first season um, in terms of with the exception of McCoy a little bit in in the mantra but um, you get to understand a little bit of his character and who he is Mm -hmm. and there's kind of a beautiful poignancy to it because Spock is a is at this point well established as having his emotions under control but he has this feeling this drive 
to do right by do his, right by his captain, captain. Yeah. and there there's emotion there. There's mm-hmm. there's a sense of well, it's, yeah, camaraderie that um, it's one of the most interesting things about Data, Spock, all these super logical characters yeah. is that. If you don't have emotions, you don't really have any drives to do anything. There's yeah. no reason to do anything if you don't have emotions. The minute you start doing things, yeah. It, so there's there's an inherent contradiction there, there yeah. as as yeah. a storyteller, but it it makes because you can rationalize it however you want. I mean, yeah. Tuvok is watching Voyager. Tuvok is the the expert at rationalizing yeah. his actions and what he does. Yeah. Um, and so, it, it, but it makes it really interesting for to watch the characters because, mm-hmm. like, if they don't have these drives, then what is driving them to do it? And yeah. you fill in the gaps as the as the viewer and yeah. stuff. And but the menagerie kind of chips away at that. A yeah, it's yeah. really interesting. Yeah. Uh, the other episode I wanted to talk about in this part is a Taste of Armageddon, which yeah. is um, the one I, I mentioned earlier with regard to drone warfare. It's, I kind of see it as like a, a parallel. Um, obviously not written at the time because drone warfare wasn't a thing. Um, but I see it now as like this is the culmination of of warfare that you are completely removed yeah. from as a as a military power. Yeah. This these two civilizations, the Enterprise encounters are in the middle of a fight, but um, no a fighting. huge war. But there's no fighting. It's all done via computer simul- simulation. But whenever one side makes a hit on the other side a certain percentage of the population has to die and the way they do that yeah yeah, they shove them into like these death tubes yeah and then they kill them (laughs) because that's the cost of war it's it's an impersonal um uh it's a very cold and logical way of doing war it's, but it's not at all yeah like it doesn't make any sense whatsoever yeah. to like well you just voluntarily kill yourself because those are the rules of the game that yeah. you're basically playing like yeah. you're, the game can arrive at actual but it's death. what it's what they've developed over however many yeah this war has years. been going on for centuries yeah. or something like that so right? this is where they've come where they've gotten to and it's it's it works for them it totally works <laughs> for them the problem is when the enterprise is all of a sudden sentenced to death as the percentage that has yeah, to die yeah. because of the strike that the other side made and then they have to get out of it yeah. somehow yeah. but um it does present some interesting um uh, well i saw the parallels to drone warfare mm. but i think the the hesitancy or hesitation about um technology and the mm. limits of technology this is it's not it's not artificial intelligence but it's it's computerized warfare. It's yeah, computer yeah. generated warfare. Yeah, and a computer decides whether yeah. you live or die. Yeah, it's exactly. Just, yeah, and then and then the percentage of people that's also decided by yeah. like random chance. Yeah. And it's like this is this is where people in the '60s saw technology that where it could go. Yeah. And well, and it, but I I love the logical piece of it because it's like well, would you rather the bomb actually go off? Yeah. And then you not only lose the people, but you'd lose the buildings and the yeah. infrastructure and yeah. all the history and the arts and everything mm-hmm. that's that's in those actual physical mm-hmm. places those things would all disappear too whereas if you just get rid of the people then those other things continue on and survive and that's how these two nations or worlds or whatever yeah. it is have rationalized it because yeah. they're like well i don't want to actually lose all that stuff but i, I don't care if, about the people but so if much. there's but if there's no consequence <laughs> yeah. to this then they'll actually start firing real yeah. bombs again and they've taken it and it's just been going on so long that this is just part of their culture so the consequence is just the loss of the random people yeah which but they don't really seem to care that much about the losing the people either well, no, it really I, seems like nothing yeah. it, it really doesn't have a consequence i could see this being 
like if the next generation or Voyager did an episode with this, I I could see them delving into more of the philosophical, uh, you know, the moral or ethical underpinnings of what's happening. They don't really get there with this because it's like a survival story. So they're just on like autopilot. We have to get out of here. Yeah. But, um, and, and they're, they're really falling back on the, horror that the viewer would have in the 60s imagining how this could happen in the the middle of mad yeah exactly exactly (laughs) but but in the middle of of you know the vietnam war or the cold war which really did feel mutually destruction exactly so you're you're kind of um you're relying on the audience to fill in the gaps that you aren't providing and that's it. That's where it where it ends. It could have gone further, but I like that it didn't because then we can kind of talk about it in whatever terms we want to talk about it. Mm-hmm. What happened, sir? You only left a moment ago. We were successful. In the final episode, and we it's literally the final episode, and it's the episode that obviously uh, I don't think we could possibly not talk about. Um, some consider it the best episode of Star Trek of all time to this day. Yeah. Uh, I'm not among that list, but it's definitely... It's definitely in my top it's, ten. <laughs> it's definitely very good. Uh, City on the Edge of Forever. Yeah. Um, the classic time travel episode. The second time travel episode, I was thinking it was the first one, but there was one earlier in the season. Uh, Tomorrow is Yesterday. Oh. Um, is when they went back in time and they found the pilot, spotted yes. their ship, and they had to beam them out. And then, in the 60s. In the 60s, yeah. yeah, It was a very yeah, 60s, yeah. Uh, you know, ca- right. fish out of water kind of kind of situation. Um, but yeah, so that there was that early time travel one, which but this is, is kind of so goofy. Much, this one is serious. I mean, Harlan Ellison good. wrote yes. the script for this, or wrote the, the, the original story script, for it. Yeah. Um, it. It deviated quite dramatically yeah. from his yeah his, uh, his version by the time was it made it to screen. yeah but so i mean a, a pretty so one of the most celebrated sci-fi authors of well, all 60s time for sure, yeah. um so it's it's got all of the hallmarks of a great star trek episode that we now recognize as a great star trek episode but it also feels like a true morality play yeah sci-fi adventure story yeah. um and and each of our three main heroes get to play a very important role yep. in the story. So we really get to see that dynamic play out. McCoy uh, goes mad and ends up running. They, they're on this, they discover this planet and the, the this guardian of forever who is able to send people across time, wherever in yeah. time. And McCoy uh, stabs himself in the leg with a, a hypo spray. Yeah. yeah, yeah. Um, and ends up going through this portal and winding up somewhere in the past that has dramatically impacted the future. They now the people on this planet, the rest of the crew, don't. There's no Starfleet. There's yeah. no ship. They're they're stuck there, yeah. and they need to know what did McCoy do in the past that changed yeah. our present. Yeah. So uh, Spock and Kirk have to go back in time and they discover that uh, McCoy has saved the life of a woman who uh, eventually goes on to broker peace. Well, not broker peace. She, she's a pacifist yeah, who well, convinces yeah. the United States yes. not to enter World War II. Yeah. And so, well, she, in a way, she's brokering peace. Anyway, because they don't go to World War II, uh, Starfleet doesn't exist. Like, yeah. the, the whole trajectory of the United yeah. States and world history changes yeah. because of this one woman, Edith Keeler. 
who Kirk ends up falling madly in of love course, with. Yes. So Classic. now the, the the conflict is in place. You've got Spock trying to very logically figure out what is going yeah, on. Yeah. And when he hits on what it is, it's already too late. Because Kirk's in love. Kirk's in love, yeah. but now she has to die. And it's, um, you know, beautifully done the yeah. way that it happens. I mean, she's hit by a car, so that's not beautifully <laughs> done. But... Um, it, the way it happens, it's like Kirk has to let this happen because the needs of the many outweigh the needs of the few. And uh, and I guess that was one of the deviations from the original story. I think in the original uh, story that Ellison wrote before it was even a Star Trek yeah. script. Like he had it before he was yeah. even approached. Um, the Kirk character just stays and goes along with it and lets history be changed. Yeah, Love wins out in the end. Yeah. Not, um, not, not, not here. Not here. No. Um, and yeah, it's, so it's, it's, I think it's the first example of, uh, an episode like Tapestry mm-hmm. later on or, um, yes. The Inner Light or something like this, where it really is an emotional exploration first and foremost. Mm-hmm. And the sci-fi elements are there to expand upon it. Um, and that's just not the case in, and it surely not for good reason i mean again you don't care about the wagon train you know the third guy on the back of the wagon you know like his emotional state is not the primary reason you're watching that show it's to watch the wagon train get into fights with you know the the local cowboys or whatever right so it 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 is a great change of pace and it's a great way to end this season because it is such a it's an emotional punch after you've watched these characters for the first Mm -hmm. 26 or 27 or however many episodes there are you get to this one and uh yeah it's 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 a change it's different um but it it works really well has real stakes has stakes Uh, yeah it's established really well the storytelling is good the writing's you know solid uh what's her name edith no what's her name the character joe collins oh edith keeler edith keeler yeah you can remember her last name um she has you know this really great speech where she's talking about yeah. the starfleet ideals and at one point uh kirk is like well she's right she's just 150 years too early or yeah. something like that right like which is so poignant like again that there that there are people in every time period who can imagine these things and that's the purpose of yeah. you know the dreamers and the poets and the writers of any period that can imagine where we're gonna go yeah. that's edith keeler in 1936 or yeah. whatever so and i so, mean it, it really feels like it's kind of a love letter to the audience of star yeah. star of star trek itself because they're like yes there are these idealist people and yes we love you but sometimes we gotta let you die i guess like it's <laughs> it's it's a weird vibe but it, yeah. it does work to give you that gut punch at the end mm-hmm. um and it's yeah it's a wonderful episode i love it mm-hmm. it's one of my faves bickering is pointless i'll check on the captain's progress big slogs start at 1462.7 as has become disappointingly common, I have once again butted heads with my associate, Ensign Aiden. This time over the identity of the worst villain that has ever been encountered by a Starfleet vessel. There is precious little in life that can be known with absolute certainty. But I can say with certainty that there is absolutely a correct answer to this question, and he chose the wrong one. I suppose only time will tell if he's able to get himself back on track. Thanks, Lindsay. I, I really appreciate that. Um, oh, you're welcome. So the topic for discussion today, which of those adversaries that we talked about in this season is the best? Um, And you get to go first. I get to go first. Oh, yay. Because you're wrong. And that's what the big slog has set up. Oh, there's so many good choices, though. I'm going to go with the Klingons. Okay? Okay. It's 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 an easy choice. 
I think it's the correct one. They, the Klingons are great because, okay, I've hit it. I've hit the point. <laughs> I, was, I was just stalling for time, but I've got it now. The Klingons are the best villains because they do not stay villains forever. You made the point yourself, Lindsay. They join the Federation. They become a part. They become the allies. In fact, in that very episode, the all-knowing beings on the planet predict that one day the Federation and the Klingons will serve together and join join become allies and it's true and that is that is the very best part of star trek is that you can overcome even the biggest ignorance of one another with a little time a little talk you know you can become best friends a little and tender loving care yeah a little tlc goes a long way to uh becoming that so they are the best villains precisely because they do not remain villains forever well, see, this Match is where that, you're wrong. Um, and as uh, you know, I, we've already talked about it to death on this podcast in this episode. Khan <laughs> is the best villain uh. for so many reasons. Um, but I think the fact that he remains a villain, he is he is unbeatable and until he's beaten. But he's unbeatable for most of the time that he remains. He's Kirk's adversary. Yeah. And uh, that he kills Spock and is um, <laughs> sets into motion the series of events that eventually lead to, you know, Kirk's son's death. And all of these things happen because they're, you know, trying to fix the problems that Khan has created. Okay. I'm going to disprove you using my own logic here. Go for it. Thank you, Spock. Uh, he actually then winds up saving all of Starfleet because if they have not gone back to save Spock, they're not there to get the whales that saved the planet Earth. <laughs> so therefore, Khan saves the world. Villain. Best, no, yeah, best yeah. villain. No, just, like, just like the Klingons, he's not really a villain. So your point's undercut. Mine he is a villain, top. though. He's no, absolutely a villain. He's, yes, he is. His villainy saves the world, Lindsay. Yes, but he's not aware of it. He's not actively participating in it like the Klingons do. Pish posh. You're going to put Khan and General Martok on the same level? Yeah, they're both helping out. You oh, know, God. In their own way. <laughs> Uh, okay, yeah, Khan's good. I mean, there's no really wrong answer. No, I guess not. In there's, this one. Maybe I, I should have stuck with that. There is, <laughs> there is nothing that we can know with absolute certainty. I was, at one point I was going to say, uh, you know, technology is the villain. That, that oh. You but that's that's lame. I, I wanted to stick with one. and I'm, I'm comfortable with the plan. You should let us know, loyal listeners, if you have a favorite villain that, uh, it, whether it's one that we've seen in the original series or um, there are many more that we see throughout the later series, like the Borg or uh, the, the Kazon. Kazon. The Kazon, Lindsay. <laughs> greatest villain of all yes, time. Totally. Or maybe you like Strange New Worlds Gorn better. Yeah. You know, right. there's there's lots of choices. Lots so. of choices. But uh, you guys let us know. This has been the Bix Pod. We have uh, hopefully done season one justice. I think we've uh, got a lot to talk about heading into season two with these characters being more well established and um, some really good episodes and really good things, conversations we're going to be having there. Um, so, yeah, I guess join us in two weeks for that. Yeah. And in the meantime, keep live long fit and prosper. And have fun. Okay, we went different directions. <laughs> That's good. You can find all our episodes on Spotify, Podbean, Apple Podcasts, and iTunes, or wherever you get your podcast fix. We love to talk Star Trek with our fellow nerds, and would love to hear from you if you have thoughts or ideas about any of our discussions or the topics we've brought up. You can reach out to us on Twitter, that's at the Bixpod, or by email at thebixpod at gmail.com. We'd love to hear from you. 
Mima sup, Scotty.